Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab and joined not alongside me but a socially acceptable distance away is Shelby Kang. Shelby, we are for the very first time remotely recording this podcast together. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a different kind of feeling today, but um, I'm glad we can still uh, keep bringing our podcast to everybody. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I don't think we probably need to give much, um, much clarity as to why we are remote right now and and not sitting right next to each other. I, I'm I'm pretty sure no matter where you are in the globe, you're probably dealing with the same effects that we are. And for that reason, um, and then also if you've been following the show, the coronavirus uh, has been a topic, um, and I'm sure it'll continue to be one today. But uh, yeah, like everybody else in the world, we're, we're doing our best to, to make do. So hopefully we can provide some level of, if nothing else, just series of comfort during this time, which is challenging for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And you are spot on by guessing that coronavirus is going to be a common thing in our podcast. Um, so the first topic I have this week is from Adweek. Um, and it's about the Weather Channel and how they're customizing their programming for the pandemic. Um, so the network is finding a new niche in a kid-focused on-camera science experiments amid the corona pandemic. So as schools and businesses across the country close down, kids are going to be at home for the foreseeable future. Um, so with that in mind, the Weather Channel has incorporated hourly educational programming breaks targeted at students from the elementary school age through college. Um, and this is to make sure that kids aren't completely missing out in their daily dose of science while away from the physical classroom. So they're also covering COVID-19, um, but with a focus on debunking myths and giving practical science-based tips to viewers on how to stay safe. Um, so what people don't really often realize, and I didn't really realize it until I read this article, is that the Weather Channel is the only live network that's actually run by scientists. So... These educational clips are between three to six minutes long, and they play at 50 minutes past every hour. So some of the clips are from the network's existing library, while others are currently in the works. They're creating new content every day, including experiments that are for kids or that parents can do with their kids. So I thought this was interesting because it's kind of something that you wouldn't really ever expect to come from the Weather Channel. Um, and I think it's really clever and kind of quick thinking on them to figure out what are needs that they can fulfill with their existing resources. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see a lot of other publishers that are going to kind of start pivoting to content that's not really, you know, in their niche, but kind of fills a void? Or are people kind of just doing their normal daily programming? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think that this is definitely the time and the place if you're any kind of publisher to be thinking about things like like a startup, uh, to be thinking about things from an innovative standpoint, because um, I think one of the things that's been surprising to me looking at just uh, billions of page views worth of data across sites of just about every different category you can imagine is just how different traffic is day to day um, right now, because so much is changing. And I think one of the things that is fascinating to me is that there are so many things that I think people think are going to be really popular right now because people are at home or quarantined or whatever they think people are doing. And I have not seen that that is necessarily the case in terms of what people think people are doing. They're not necessarily doing. I mean, people are binge watching video. That's true. 
Um, but outside of that, it's really interesting to see the trends and behaviors that people are adopting. So I think as a publisher, you really want to think about what is it that your audience is doing right now? So who are they? You should know that. And then what can you do to reach them and, and provide value to them during this time? The Weather Channel is a really great example and that there's so many kids that are home from school. And I've heard from a lot of parents where they're saying like, you know, the school curriculum that's remote is okay, but they're like, you know, it's about 50% of the way there. The other 50%, really, if I had to rely on this as the education for my kid, I'm going to have to do some of this myself. And so by providing additional resources for children at this time, I think is a really smart move. Yeah, definitely. The next topic I have on deck is also kind of coronavirus related, but um, it's about how a lot of major publishers are taking down their paywalls for coronavirus coverage. Um, so publishers from The Atlantic, the Philadelphia Inquirer, all the way to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Um, so they've each made corona coverage available to non-subscribers. So these decisions for these outlets was an easy one, apparently. Um, even for those who have recently put up paywalls, um, they're seeing it as a way to get people to pay for subscriptions or memberships a bit further down the line. So publishers believe that by offering this free information on coronavirus, it's an opportunity to reach new customers who may stick around with the publication afterwards and maybe perhaps be willing to pay for the content later if they're impressed by it. So do you see this to be a common thing among everybody? Is it something that's going to kind of get more popular as time goes on? I definitely think that, um, so being able to do live tracking of popular events is something that I think um, publishers have been doing for a while. I, I think that this is the prime opportunity to offer, give people something that's unique. You know, this kind of goes back to the Weather Channel uh, story, but I think you know, the, the Times and the Post and some of the others that are doing this, um, this is a really smart move from the standpoint of, I do think it is a way to build a loyal audience. I mean, when I'm reading about the coronavirus right now, I, I, I Google it just to see if there's anything in particular in the headlines. And, you know, the New York Times, you know, AMP version of the live updates article consistently has been number one um, when I've been searching that. And so, uh, that's worked out really great for them, and I think it's a way for them to maybe build a loyal readership. Do I think those people are going to stick around and pay for subscriptions? I don't think that. Personally, I don't. Uh, I actually think in this time, the it's a bad move to think you're going to pivot these people to subscription. However, you this is how you build a brand, and I do think this is how you truly do build a relationship with an audience, which I think is a really hard thing for publishers to do. Um, and so I don't necessarily think you're going to pivot them from coronavirus into paying subscriber, but I do think that you can build them into a loyal audience, which maybe down the road they can turn into a subscriber. Um, but we've talked about subscription enough on this show that I won't beat a dead horse here. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, I think uh, the article mentioned that I believe it was Los Angeles Times. Um, they were doing a newsletter um, for people about coronavirus. Um, so you can't count on subscriptions, then maybe you could count on at least communicating with them through email. Um, so the next topic I have on deck is from search engine land. Um, so some people strongly believe that Google has a corporate or a brand bias in search results. And people say that, you know, the first two pages of results are often kind of devoid of blogs or personal websites. A writer from Search Engine Land decided to look into some data on SEMrush, and he says otherwise. So he says that although there are a lot of big brands in the top 100 websites, the number one site by Google search traffic is Wikipedia. 
Um, and although Wikipedia is a well-recognized brand, it's actually a nonprofit. So Wikipedia gets four times as much search traffic as Amazon, which is number two on the list, and 32 times as much search traffic than Apple, which is the top brand, I guess, on the internet, according to this article. So he says that if Google had an inherent corporate bias or brand bias, then nonprofit Wikipedia would have less search traffic um, than for-profit brands that spend money on branding. Um, he also argues that it's important to note that it's not 2005 anymore um, and that the age of social media, many people use social networks and corporate sites that thrive on user-generated content, such as TripAdvisor and Yelp, to post their thoughts. So even though you may not find a lot of blogs coming up on search rankings, you might kind of get regular people's thoughts and search without necessarily finding it on someone's blog. Um, another thing he notes is that in travel-related queries, many travel influencer personal blogs appear, and there's no real clear relationship between a site's overall authority and the top three rankings in this niche. And smaller sites with relevant content are ranking better than travel behemoths like TripAdvisor and Expedia. So obviously things differ on a query-by-query query basis. A search query about travel is going to look a lot different than one about a retail product or a health question. But what's your opinion on this? Do you feel like Google has a brand bias or is this something that you've noticed or experienced kind of just on your own? So, you know, we did a study on this uh, a year ago and we, you know, I think this is a long held belief of people that Google rewards all the big sites, you know, um, but it's just not the case. Big sites, traditionally brands, uh, Alexa, top, you name it. Uh, they're seeing overall declines as it relates to organic traffic year over year compared to the smaller sites, which continue to cannibalize more and more results uh, at large. 25% of Google searches to this day, uh, they, they claim, have never been searched before, which uh, every time I hear that, I'm like, how can that even be possible? Um, but that's true. And so all those results are going to look uh, slightly different now. Looking at the recent site speed study that we did, uh, we were able to find that Wikipedia is dominating the top of a lot of results. But as you mentioned, they're a nonprofit. Uh, Wikipedia could be making a fortune right now from just ad revenue alone, and they've, you know, consistently held that they're going to remain the way that they remain. And um, so, you know, you mentioned Amazon and Apple; those are both non-publisher brands. And I think the thing to take away from this, if you're a, a smaller independent publisher, is that um, Google f throughout the last decade has consistently tried to diversify search results. And quite frankly, I think the, the thought on this for smaller publishers has been because you see those brands at the top of results, because they are big and they're large and they get a lot of page views, you think that Google has this inherent bias and it makes sense because you, you think, well, people know those things. Google think it's, thinks it's a safe bet. But if you think about it from a business perspective, Google has every reason in the world to diversify results from a competitive standpoint, both personally to them, and then also from an antitrust and um, and just generally providing people a better experience. Um, if you sent, uh, let's say, 30% of all traffic to one particular brand, I mean, Wikipedia is in danger of this to a certain extent where... You know, if you wanted the answers to something, why would you go to Google? Why would not just go to Wikipedia if it's always the number one result anyways? Thinking about the coronavirus, if you were looking for the latest coronavirus news, why not the New York Times instead of Google? And so I think from Google's standpoint, you're 
always thinking about how do I provide the best results and diversifying them in general. And so, uh, yeah, that all makes sense to me. And I think it's counterintuitive to what people believe in many cases. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely counterintuitive to what I kind of felt. But after reading the article, it makes a lot of sense. The last topic I have on deck is kind of just one that I've thrown in because I'm personally biased. It's about Snapchat, and I actually love Snapchat. But this one is from DigiDay, and it's um, titled Snapchat Might Be the Best Positioned Platform for Coronavirus Outbreak. So in times of crisis, Snapchat is pretty happy to be Snapchat right now. Um, and that's because they don't have the misinformation problems that a lot of other platforms do. So the VP of policy at Snapchat says that they've worked hard to design their platform differently than other traditional media. Um, for example, rather than building an open feed where unvetted content can go viral, they offer a curated portal for professional media publishers, uh, many of whom are covering coronavirus. Um, they also partner with trusted public health voices like the World Health Organization, to create overlay filters that they expect will be seen by millions of people and raise awareness on how to stay safe. Because of this, whatever misinformation that does appear in the platform usually doesn't ever really reach the mass audience. So I included this one just because I like Snapchat a lot. I personally get a lot of information from it. It's probably the platform that I go to the most to get information or just like news mostly. Um, but I, yeah, I guess it's kind of just a thing that a lot of publishers can sometimes forget by putting content in a lot of these platforms is there are different repercussions that aren't really thought about and misinformation is definitely one of them. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different things that people maybe don't understand about the nature of uh, user behavior in general and specifically it relates to viral content and things along those lines. Um, the way that, I mean, especially where we're at right now, I think what people maybe don't understand about everything that we're going through globally right now as a human race is how much this is going to affect not just the economy, but uh, the far reaching ramifications of what this means for our daily lives. Um, because not only is the economy going to be disrupted, but there will be businesses that are fundamentally a bigger part of our lives and fundamentally a smaller part of our lives than they ever were before. You think about the reliance that people are going to have on somebody like Amazon here in the United States right now as it relates to being having things delivered to them versus going out to retail stores. All these things are going to have uh, impacts on the way that we use the internet at large. And I think as a publisher, you need to be able to adapt to those types of things and be able to provide people mechanisms um, and then also try to trigger this for your content and things along those lines. This is an opportunity, I think, in a lot of respects to, to um, basically get people to change the behavior to coming to you or uh, to build an audience that you didn't have before because of the types of content or the way that you publish your content. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would say just it's, it's a really good time to think creatively and to think outside of the box in general. Yeah, and you've got plenty of time to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I already I said that was my last topic, but uh, one thing I want to throw in is that you've been talking to a lot of publishers and a lot of media professionals and media experts. And do you have any other kind of insights or words of wisdom that you can share with our audience surrounding the coronavirus and digital publishing? 
So it, it, I told my wife this earlier today, but it's a little bit odd because I have people from Adweek and Digiday and AdAge and even someone from the New York Times early this morning reaching out and asking me, basically asking for my opinion or my expert advice on like, what, what do I think is going to happen with the economy? How do I think the digital economy is reacting to this? And it's odd to me to, to have these outlets coming to me for answers. And I've been honest with them all about this. This is what we see. This is the data that I have. Uh, at Ezoak, we obviously have the ad revenue index. We also have a really unique look at paid juice from across the web. And so people are interested in, in how that is uh, impacting a lot of different things. Uh, realistically, we're seeing about a 10 to 15% decline in the overall sort of, I guess, uh, digital footprint um, that we're looking at year over year in terms of ad rates and, and the amount of money that's in the ecosystem. I, I do think that that's probably going to continue and could, could maybe get worse. I don't think it's going to get too much worse, but I do think it's going to have a real slow recovery in that respect. And so the advice that I would give to publishers is um, this is not the time to think business as usual. It's the time to think, um, how do I how do I capitalize on this? How do I take advantage of this opportunity? Because there is an opportunity here. While there are a lot of negative aspects to this, as we'll all experience far beyond just the things that we do uh, professionally, but also the things that we do personally, this is going to be something that also presents a unique opportunity, not just to capitalize financially, professionally, but I think, you know, you can think about this in terms of how do you provide something that is ultimately good and that uh, you provide audiences with something they want and maybe even provide jobs for people um, that are going to be looking for them here soon. And uh, you're going to have people that are looking for writing jobs and a lot of other things. And it's a it's a great opportunity. There's a lot of experts out there right now that can't go to work that would, I'm sure, love to write some content. Yeah, definitely. That's something that I think everybody or almost everybody can kind of see as an opportunity is writers and having more time on their hands. A number of influencers worldwide just exponentially grew. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually all that I have for this week. Is there anything else that you want to add in? No, I just hope that everybody in our audience is, is safe and healthy. I hope you're safe and healthy, Shelby. And uh, yeah, I just want to wish all of our listeners good luck as they handle and deal with a lot of the different aspects of this uh, global crisis. And we'll be here. We'll continue to be cranking out the show and good content. You can visit us at publisherlabpodcast.com. And you can leave us questions if there are things that you'd like us to address specifically as it relates to this event. Um, be more than happy to. And uh, Shelby, is there anything else that you have for our audience? I would like to mention our running blog that we keep updating with live updates. If you go to ezoic.com slash blog, um, one of our most recent blogs is on the coronavirus and we're updating information and data as we get it daily. So um, for those who kind of want to keep a close pulse on it, um, that resource is out for you. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Shelby. And we'll catch all of our listeners next time on another episode of The Publisher Lab.